You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Professors Jay Bhattacharya and Gigi Foster. My guests today are both in Sydney, Jay Bhattacharya from America and Gigi Foster from Sydney. Unfortunately, I can't be with them in person, but let me introduce them. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and uh, listeners and watchers will know that I have talked to him in the past. He directs the Stanford Center on the Demography of Health and Aging. His research focuses on the economics of healthcare around the world, with a particular focus on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations. Dr. Bhattacharya's peer-reviewed research has been published in economics, statistics, legal, medical, public health, and health policy journals. He holds an MD and a PhD in economics from Stanford University. He's been one of the most prominent critics in the Western world of government responses to the COVID pandemic and is a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, a document signed by thousands of doctors and some outstanding scientists criticising the COVID lockdowns. Gigi Foster is Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales. Formerly educated at Yale University and the University of Maryland, she works in diverse fields, including corruption, lab experiments, behavioural economics, and Australian policy. She's authored numerous books and journal articles, uh, received an award for outstanding contribution to student learning in 2017, and was named 2019's Young Economist of the Year by the Economic Society of Australia. Some credentials. She also hosts The Economist's radio show and podcast with ABC Radio. Her latest co-authored books are The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why and What to Do Next, published in 2021, and Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? It's a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of the Australian policy response published just this year. Well, Jay, all the way from America, great to have you with us. Gigi in Sydney, your hometown. Magnificent background you've got there of Sydney Harbour, and it's live. It's not artificial for the listeners. That's Sydney Harbour. Come and see it if you haven't seen it. Uh, but let's uh, come to our discussion about COVID and the lessons that we must learn, because this is going to happen again, in my view, in one form or another. Uh, by March 2020, it's fair to say that COVID was the headline news around the world. Pretty much soon, all of the developed world was effectively in lockdown. And the objective was to flatten the curve, in inverted commas, and to stop the spread, or as much as possible stop the spread. When did uh, each of you start to realise or suspect that something was pretty questionable about government responses to the COVID pandemic? So, I mean, I, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in, in uh, middle of March 2020, uh, arguing that we did not know the mortality rate from COVID. And I called for a set of, of, of studies to measure how widespread COVID had been in the population. Um, and then I, then I ran a couple of studies, John, in April of 2020 in, in California, where we found that there were 50 times more infections than people had been identified as cases. So that meant a few things. One is that uh, the mortality rate from COVID in the early days was actually something like 0.2%, uh, 99.8% survival for people that are outside of nursing homes. Um, th the second thing was that it was already three or 4% of the population had been infected. 
It was too late to get to zero. It was too late. In the United States, COVID had already been seeded very widely. Um, and so it was, you know, it was very early on that I, I, I figured the, the narrative wasn't right. And Gigi, I mean, you know, the situation with Australia, I, I've just been to, I've been to Britain and to uh, the US since Easter. And we're now defined by Melbourne's lockdowns in particular. People say to me, what's happened to Australia? And you started to question that. When did you start to think we've got this wrong? Well, it was a couple of weeks after Jay's Wall Street Journal article. Um, I had been looking at the data, particularly because I have a son in university who was kicked out of the dorms on about March 20th in Boston. And so he was flying home and I was looking at the data that was coming out of China and the, the early stuff. And it just looked to me like, yeah, this could be nasty for a, an older person with comorbidities, but for young people, this was not a, a real concern. And I marched into the studio of my uh, radio show at the time that I was doing with Peter Martin, my co-host, ABC Radio National, and I said on air without any pre-warning to the producer or to Peter that I didn't think lockdowns were the right answer and that we should be focusing our attention on the elderly and the people who are actually likely to have serious effects of this disease. Uh, and after that, the ABC received incredible amounts of hate mail saying that I should be taken off the air, that I was a threat to public health. That's when I knew that something was rotten, something was wrong. Motivations which should not be leading public health policy were actually in fact behind them. And, and that core motivation in the population side was fear. And that fear then propelled the kind of massive disproportionate overreaction that we saw by governments around the world. And of course, the, the catastrophic effects of the power and the big money that could be made off of that fear in the ensuing couple of years. To play devil's advocate with a couple of issues. Firstly, um, I guess we knew a bit less about it then. And I must say, personally, at the time, I thought trying to, if you like, flatten the curve in case we overloaded our health system, sounded reasonable at that time. I mean, I think uh, it, it, uh, it was reasonable in one sense, John. There, were, there was a lot we didn't know in the early days of the pandemic. Um, and we saw images out of China of overwhelmed hospital systems. We also saw images out of Italy of overwhelmed hospital systems. But the right response to that isn't uh, widespread quarantine of healthy populations. The right response to that is the building of excess capacity uh, or capacity, surge capacity, if you see a very large number of cases. That's how we deal with respiratory pandemics generally. Uh, the right response to that is focused protection of vulnerable people. Uh, we, as Gigi said, we knew early on that it was really older people that were likely to be hospitalized, likely to die from this, well, much more likely to die than young people for whom it was much less of a threat. Um, and so the right response wasn't induced panic, the right response wasn't uh, widespread lockdown and, and home quarantine of healthy people the right, and closed businesses and whatnot, closed schools. The right response was uh, on the supply side. Let's, let's expand our capacity to deal with surges as, as they happen um, and let's work to reduce the threat to vulnerable people. Uh, and, and instead what we did was we, we actually exacerbated that. In New York, for instance, uh, COVID-infected patients were sent back to nursing homes where the disease spread, inducing obviously incredible death, but also stress on hospital systems, which then had to deal with a very large number of COVID-infected patients. Um, the idea that, uh, that we should protect hospital systems, ironically, led to us ignoring focused protection, which then led to overwhelmed hospital systems. I completely agree with that. And there's a couple of other things I would say. As the pandemic wore on, we 
we found that hospital treatment wasn't actually the panacea that we initially were led to believe it to be. You know, we were told here in Australia, if you get COVID, just sit tight and hope, not do anything, but hope that you're not going to get bad enough that you have to go to hospital. And then if you go to hospital, then we'll treat you. That implicitly sets up this notion that hospital care is the only thing that can possibly be done about COVID. Well, of course, now we have the vaccines as well. So there's the two things that can be done. But in reality, there were many things we could do to protect the elderly, including working on aged care, home protocols, staffing, um, ventilation systems, protection, making sure they had enough supplements to keep their immune systems as high as possible. All of that care and protection that, as Jay said, could have prevented people from going to hospital. And the second thing I'll say as a dismal scientist is that overloading <laughs> the uh, hospital system is something that does happen quite regularly. And if you never get to capacity on your hospital system, you've got too many hospitals. There are plenty of other things we can do as a society to promote life and extend life and in, improve the quality of life. Hospitals aren't the only thing, and we have scarce resources. We should be paying attention to all those other expenditure items. And of course, that was one of the big blindnesses of this period. We didn't pay attention to so many of the other causal factors of human welfare. And as a result, we caused catastrophic destruction of welfare. Second question, before we come to some issues around why so many people demanded the course of action that we took, particularly in this country, uh, let me play devil's advocate again for a moment. Let's unpack um, the fact that a lot of us, a lot of people would say, well, look what happened in America. Uh, you know, they came in near the top of the death rate uh, sort of stats, uh, over uh, 300 uh, deaths per 100,000. Australia way down the list, much better performance on paper, death rate of less than 40 per 100,000. You would say, I think there's much more to the story, but can we just unpack that for a moment? Sure. Um, so I think uh, one set of ways to think about that is to look at, within America, places that followed a much more lockdown-focused strategy, closing schools, closing businesses, and so on, uh, like California, where I, where I live, uh, compared against a, 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 a place like Florida, which had a much lighter touch. Um, you know, the, the, while, while schools closed early, for the most part, through most of the pandemic, schools were open in Florida. Businesses didn't close, churches didn't close. Uh, the, 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 uh, the public health authority didn't attempt to create anxiety and, and fear in the population. And through the pandemic, the overall, uh, the, the COVID uh, death rate, age adjusted for the fact that, that that Florida is older than California is roughly the same in California and Florida. There's no evidence that California did much better on COVID. And then if you look at the overall excess death rate, all-cause mortality rate, actually Florida did slightly better than California. Um, you also have the example of Sweden, which followed a famously a much lighter touch approach um, that, that, that had basically as, had uh, all-cause excess death rates through the pandemic that's on par with Australia, which had very little COVID in the early, early days of the pandemic. Um, um, so, so Australia, Australia is, 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 it's important to understand what exactly what happened in Australia and how its early success with managing COVID actually led to, I think, much worse outcomes than you otherwise would have had. Um, because Australia is located in the Southern Hemisphere, COVID did, uh, and it was a summer, the Southern Hemisphere summer when COVID hit, it wasn't widely seeded within Australia. And so the initial lockdowns worked. The initial lockdowns actually did reduce cases to zero in, within Australia, but it set a policy trap that made it impossible for Australia to open up. Whenever a few cases would happen, yeah. entire regions would lock down, entire states would lock down. 
entire you know, large cities were locked down. Melbourne, in some you know, with brutal lockdowns, violating civil liberties. Uh, uh, the uh, the pol politics of success with zero COVID made it so that you had to keep having that success over and over again, despite any cost you'd have to pay for it. And ultimately, when 2022 hit, COVID spread rapidly all through Australia. And now uh, there actually have been more COVID cases per capita in Australia than just in the last nine months in total compared to the United States all through the pandemic. I mean, let me just say Is that Is that again. right? Yes. Yeah, so Australia actually has had more COVID cases per capita. Now you've had lower death rates, uh, and this is probably the best argument for lockdown you can make, is that because you, you waited, you, you delayed the onset of all these inevitable COVID cases till after the vaccine. Yeah. But the problem is the vaccine was available in late 2020. Why did Australia wait until late uh, early 2022 to really open? You've basically had a full year of lockdown harms that could have and should have been avoided uh, during which uh, children didn't go to school, ma mass violation of civil liberties uh, on a scale which is un was unimaginable before, I think, in, in liberal democracies, uh, small businesses crushed, people with uh, skipping cancer treatment and uh, needed medical care, preventative care, uh, anxiety and depression at, in, at catastrophic levels that are going to be, that Australia is going to be paying a cost for for a very long time. So I would agree with much of what Jay has said. As you may know, John, I've just recently released a book with the help of Sanjeev Sablok, who was an ex-Victorian Treasury economist before he left there, um, after having tried to call out the madness and been uh, not exactly welcomed to do so by the Treasury. Um, and it's by Conacourt Press, publishing uh, this year, actually just a couple of days ago, came off the press called Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? Because, of course, it was the greater good that we were told was being served by these measures. And, and I will agree with Jay that we were lucky to be in the southern uh, uh, summer when COVID first hit. It also seems to be that in this area of the world, there was a bit more deep immunity to coronaviruses that are like COVID. And so it just wasn't particularly as lethal here as it was in other places of the world. Um, and so I think that the, certainly the border closures did keep out some of the COVID that would have otherwise been in here. Whether you could make an argument that the lockdowns domestically on top of the border closures were really adding much uh, is quite debatable. And indeed, what they were mainly adding, as Jay has just said, are those immense amounts of costs, uh, which we document in our book. Now, on the point of whether or not it was, it could be argued that keeping the country closed until a vaccine arrived was maybe a good thing from a welfare standpoint. I mean, this again implies that the vaccine was the only thing you could do about COVID. In fact, we knew even in 2020 that there were some promising off-label already existing treatments, including just what we normally do to support people's immune systems, you know, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, you know, not, not too hard to figure out these things that if we had pushed out, particularly to our vulnerable populations early on, this COVID threat would have been reduced to just a tiny little blip and we could have spun a different political story. And of course, as we had emerging evidence about many other kinds of early treatments, we could have put those into the mix. And I was arguing strenuously and hoping that the phone would ring from a politician that we need a new political story, even from the end of 2020 when it became, it had become clear that this was not going to be a passing fear. This was going to have a, have a, have a crowd dynamic to it, which would perpetuate the madness for quite a long time. And as you know, it's only now finally starting to, to really 
fade in some places. And here in Australia, we still see people around, you know, walking very scared to take off their masks and wanting their fourth or even fifth shot. So I think that the narrative that the vaccine was the thing we had to hold out for, that was something spun by our politicians. It was not actually something real in terms of a, a public health uh, reality. Let, let, let me agree with Gigi on that, on, on that actually. I, I do completely agree that there were many things that could have been done even in 2020 if, uh, if, if rather than staying closed, Australia had opened uh, to protect older people. Uh, you know, if you look at, for instance, what Sweden did very early on, they, they, they made big mistakes in Stockholm, in their nursing homes, leading a lot of death. But then they, then they changed course, apologized for this, and then adopted policies that protected their older population even when COVID was spreading through the rest of the population. They kept schools open, but they also provided tools and resources and knowledge uh, for their older population to, protect, to be protected during those, those big surges of COVID. And as a result, they've had better all-cause mortality outcomes than most of Europe and even and very close to what Australia experienced. Can we just explore the issue that, uh, that does arise out of this? I don't think the Australian people had enough information before them to form a balanced view about the costs. Uh, I, I, it's a theme I often come back to in these conversations. I'm deeply worried about the way we seem to load everything against young people now. Um, I actually think that the economic response by Western governments to the great financial crisis has hit younger people much harder than those who are older and have assets. I think COVID continued that. Uh, and I also think poorly designed climate change policy will do exactly the same thing. Um, but to hone in on that, there was no putting before the Australian people that this is massively expensive, that that debt loading will be carried by our children that it will reduce their capacity to respond to a similar or worse pandemic or other glitch of any sort in the future. And the other aspect was, I mean, there was a report that came out of Sydney University, I suspect it was gilding the lily a bit, but it talked about the massive surge in likely suicides amongst young people. None of that was significantly fed through the media, included by, including by our publicly funded broadcaster. Uh, do you find this is as frustrating and concerning as I do, that the populace <laughs> is not given the information they need to insist on a more balanced approach? And we'll come back to who's exercising power in a minute. <laughs> but, but this wasn't about, I mean, the incentives of the politicians and the people who had the information were not aligned with what people would have needed to hear in order to make a balanced decision. What was happening here was the population was possessed by their fear. They were absolutely petrified and they were clamoring at the ballot boxes and anywhere they could for protection from this thing they feared. And so the politicians were reacting in the way the politicians always do, using the politicians' syllogism. We must be seen to do something. Here's something. It's big. Let's do that. Right? That was what was going on. It was not about this lovely idea that I, I share with you, actually, that we should 
be having more public debates and discussions about issues of the day that involve a comprehensive and, and widely you know, understood diverse number of perspectives on, on any, you know, whatever issue, whatever angle needs to be brought up. I mean, your podcast is an example and a microcosm of how to do this. I'm working with a lot of other agencies trying to lift the quality of public discussion on, on public issues, but that is, it is not the incentive of politicians to promote that sort of thing. So I think it's just, I mean, yes, it's frustrating, but it's also real politic. I mean, I think uh, I've talked to politicians, uh, honest politicians who blame politicians. <laughs> I've talked to journalists, honest journalists who blame journalists for the, but I, I frankly, I blame scientists. Because uh, I, I, I think, and people in public health. Public health, I think, uh, systematically created an environment where the kind of conversation you're calling for, which is absolutely reasonable, could not happen. And I'll just give you one incident uh, from my own experience during the pandemic. Uh, I, so I wrote a, a document called the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, which maybe we'll talk about a little later. But it, what the argument was focused protection of older people and lifting lockdowns. Uh, I wrote it and tens of thousands of doctors and epidemiologists signed on. Four days after we wrote this, doc, doc, this document, it, it, had, it had already spread vir virally because it was the old, basically the old pandemic plan that, that, that almost everybody under, before 2020 understood was the right way to deal with the pandemic. Um, the the head of the National Institute of Health in the United States, a man named Francis Collins, wrote to Tony Fauci, uh, you know, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the famous Tony Fauci, yes. and he, he, uh, he called... Can I just interrupt? That's the Francis Colum, uh, Collins of uh, the genome sequencing, human genome sequencing fame? Yes. So one of the most respected scientists in the world. That's correct. What, what, probably, you know, the, the, uh, the man that was most responsible for, for the human, human Genome Project. Um, and the head of the National Institute of Health. So, you know, a, a, a man with a lot of prominence, a lot of power, he sits on top of $40 billion of federal funding. $40 billion of federal funding of scientists, uh, and not just power in terms of money, but in terms of the social status of scientists, so that, uh, so that uh, if you don't get an NIH grant, you can't get tenure at a top medical school. So I, I have a, a tenure at Stanford University. I had to get NIH grants to get that funding. So he, he wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me, Sunetra Gupta, who's an, a, a fantastic epidemiologist at Oxford University, and Martin Kuldorf, another a fantastic epidemiologist at Harvard University, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, uh, he called the three of us, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, fringe epidemiologists. And then he called for a devastating takedown of the premises of, the, of, the, of this. I started getting calls from newspapers asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip, why I wanted to, to kill grandma, what, what was wrong with me, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what would possess me to, to go against the, 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 the scientific consensus on lockdowns, which I knew did not actually exist. I knew. And you could see it from the Great Barrington Declaration. Tens of thousands of very prominent scientists, including Nobel Prize winners, signed on to this. Um, the public health authorities at, on the top of these bureaucracies created an illusion of consensus in favor of lockdowns did not, that did not actually exist. And when you have that illusion of consensus, politicians were helpless. They were helpless to push back, unless you were an extraordinary politician like uh, someone like Ron DeSantis in Florida. Uh, you, you had politicians that, that said, well, I want to follow the science. Well, they look at Tony Fauci, they say, oh, I'm following the science. But Tony Fauci and Francis Collins and many other people in scientific bureaucracies around the world use their power over the voices of other scientists to create an illusion of consensus, to silence those voices in favor of their, their policy. 
And I think they fooled the politician class, and I think they fooled the journalist class. So I want to agree with much of what Jay is saying there about science. I certainly felt this in the economics profession here in Australia. In fact, the things you're saying, people writing to me saying, why do you want to let it rip? Why do you want to kill grandma? Um, and in fact, somebody on ABC Q&A saying, how can you say that? Well, you know, when I, what I was saying something about, well, how many other people have died from other things during this period? Or, or you know, yes, we are going to have to accept some deaths from COVID. Uh, and, and that kind of perversion of what it means to be a scientist. You know, a scientist is not somebody who simply stands for whatever the, uh, the main, you know, power and money, uh, you know, interests say is the right thing. That is not, that is not what science, and science is also not fixed. Right? So our understanding of this disease and of how to treat it, how to, how to combat it, has evolved, of course, as the disease has evolved, of course, right, over the last two and a half years. And a scientist, a true scientist, keeps looking at those data and updating his or her estimates of what's going on, doesn't stay tethered to the same completely erroneous epidemiological models, which left out huge trust of, you know, huge amounts of the things that were going on in the real world to deliver these very scary estimates. Um, but in, instead, you know, is humble and, and realizes that no model is perfect. And so there was a huge failure in science. In economics, certainly, the word fringe also got applied to me and, you know, a few a handful of other economists in Australia who did put their heads up above the parapet. Um, and, and really, it's something that is a broad problem within science itself. It, it, there, we have a, a bit of a self-licking ice cream cone problem in science now, right, where you have people who, who happen to be first past the post in a, in a particular field publishing a particular article. And in the case of COVID, it was Neil Ferguson and his mates and you know, a few others who were of that ilk. And they just lock in on this is the right thing to think this is the right way to think about this problem and anybody who comes along later trying to get their articles published faces a wall of editors and referees who are biased in favor of what has already been published in a supposedly high-ranking journal and so you end up having the perpetuation of bad ideas for a long time and the suppression of dissent and so this is a this is a big problem not just in in health and economics but i think throughout the social sciences and the hard sciences to a to an extent and it's something we talk about in my co-author book of last year the great COVID panic um, with Paul Freiders and, and uh, Michael Baker. And actually, that was published by the Brownstone Institute, who, um, which is where Jay and I first met um, back a few months ago. We were both over there in Connecticut and, uh, and, and having a think about all errors COVID policy. Uh, and so, you know, that, that is something we're going to have to clean up in our own backyards. And I think this is one of the things coming out of the COVID period. We're all going to have to take responsibility for remedying some of the systemic problems that have fed into uh, the disasters that have, uh, have afflicted us during this period. Uh, what you're saying here about the scientific world is of extraordinary importance. In essence, if I've got you correctly, you're saying that just like any other professional group, anyone in society today, they can be, if you like, put under a lot of pressure to conform, not to speak out, not to put a different view. And yet we're consistently told, particularly, I'm going to say it by the public broadcaster in Australia, you must listen to the science. It's not as simple as that, is it? Let, let's be honest. It's not as simple as that. And if you come to, you know, the obvious point a friend of mine said the other day in relation to climate change, he's not a sceptic about climate change happening, but he's very worried about the way in which people are being obliged to fall into line on the modelling as to what it might mean and how you should respond, because actually there's anything but a settled approach on what the modelling means and how you might respond. That is a matter of fact for anybody listening who might want to query it. 
the ICPP itself will reveal that to you. And yet we don't hear that. You've got this sort of unbelievable pressure to toe the line and it's affecting the science community that we think of as being above being influenced. Uh, let me tell you something even worse, perhaps. So my co-author, Paul Friders, and I have written a paper called Hiding the Elephant, the tragedy of um, the COVID-19 policy and uh, economists apologizing for it or something like that. And we've tried to get this published in a journal which was publishing the proceedings of the conference at which it was a keynote speech that we gave. Actually, each of us gave a, a keynote speech and we've reduced them to this one paper to publish in this conference journal. Now, normally, in that situation, it's pretty much a shoe-in. You're asked to give the keynote presentation, you write up a paper from it, and it goes into the conference issue that is uh, highlighting those, those proceedings. Um, but in this case, it went through a refereeing process and then got scuppered by the managing editor. Why? Because in that paper, we talk about exactly what you're saying, that there was censorship within the economics community and there was belittling, and there was misuse of social media. There was basically just unprofessional conduct. And it, it meant that people were silenced. Now, you know, that's something that the economics community needs to deal with. And so we wrote this paper hoping that it would be the start of a conversation. How do we reconcile? We say that in the paper. We, we have this as an offering to the economics profession. Let's have a conversation about these dysfunctional dynamics that we've observed. But the economics profession is not yet ready for that conversation. And why? Because of exactly these kinds of very human motivations, career, status, um, professional status, uh, and, and personal status, even, I would say, self-esteem, feeling that you have actually been a person that during this period, the, the, the period that has featured incredible uh, draconian policies that destroyed welfare, right, left, and center, you have been a person who has actually advocated for those, or you've apologized for them, or you've implemented them, or you've told other people they had to do them, realizing afterwards that, oh gosh, that was the wrong thing to do in a big way is an incredible psychological shock. So I feel that that's one of the other things that's emerging now as a barrier to having these conversations is that people feel that psychologically they, they have painted themselves into a corner, just like the politicians, as Jay was saying earlier, have painted themselves into a corner in Australia that only admits of one way out, which is vaccines, right? Um, that's what we've been sold. In the case of you know, the everyday guy in the street, I don't know what his way out is. I mean, it's gotta be through love and acceptance from those of us who, you know, continue to, to say what we thought and who now will not try to take their heads, but there are gonna be people who want their heads. Uh, and that's one of the things I, I worry about a lot for the medium run. Yeah, I mean, th so just, just to come back to your question, John, about science. Science, if you think about it as a single answer, it, it's, how is that distinct from uh, the process that led to the Enlightenment? I mean, the, 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 the idea that you have a high pope of science, Tony Fauci, a man who can get stand up in front of the American people and say, if, uh, if you question me, you're not simply questioning a man, you're questioning science itself. We don't have a high pope of science. Science is a process of questioning. Science is a process of discovery by people in reasoned discussion with each other, developing data, testing hypotheses. It's a process that leads over time to better and better knowledge about the way the, the material world works. Uh, to, to displace that and to say, okay, a, a small number of people at the head of powerful cartels can, that can then say, this is what, what the science says, and everyone must agree or else you are uh, responsible for disinformation. It's extremely dangerous, John. And it's, 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 almost, it's, it's analogous almost to the, 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 uh, the uh, of a new dark age coming, a dark age where 
the, the, the processes that led to the, 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 the um, uh, huge advances in knowledge and material well-being and, and uh, uh, lifespans from the Enlightenment, uh, it's drawing to a close. That we have instead uh, a, a, a clarity, a scientific clarity that says, I know what's true and I will make or break anyone who disagrees with me. And, and the potential to make so, a break is so, so large there because of the concentration of power and money that we have today, yeah. right? That, the modern age features such That's, concentrations yeah. that, you know, it's very dangerous. That's a really important point. You, you use the term a new clerisy. Uh, Joel Kotkin uses that, uh, you know, out of Chapman University in California. Uh, and, you know, it's really, you've got these unbelievably wealthy people, fewer and fewer of them, but they're stratospherically wealthy and they create great wealth for the people immediately under them, while everybody else gets poorer, because that is what is happening. Joining with, let's, if I can be blunt, we've been talking about it with academia and with the media, and they lean on complicit governments, and the losers are the bulwark of a free society, your middle and working class communities, the backbone of any Western free capitalistic prosperous democracy. So I agree with you. That's why we do these conversations. We're, we're fighting against the emergence of a new dark age. I find it stunning that so many academics can't see this and are not warning us. But here's, here's something that's positive. You are people who have had the courage to speak out. That's the only answer to cancel culture is courage culture. And on this one, I reckon in a few short years' time, there won't be many people who still want to say, oh, I supported lockdowns. Do you think I'm right? I think you're entirely right, John. I've seen this just in the last two and a half years. All of the movement has been, been toward the side of, you know, maybe those, those were excessive. Maybe we did harm our, our kids. Maybe we did harm the poor and the working class. I've seen that, that movement. I see, I see very few people moving in the other direction saying, oh my gosh, I was against lockdown before, but boy, was I wrong. Uh, I wish that we'd really lock down harder. Um, I think that, uh, that movement is entirely in this direction. And, th and there's a good reason for that. It's because it corresponds to reality, right? It's not, it's just, it's just eventually truth and reality win. And John, I think that's what's happening. Uh, and you're right, within a short period of time, I think people will be ashamed that they ever really were in charge of lockdown, or they were in favor of lockdowns. And actually, can I say one thing about G something Gigi said, which I think is really, really important. As that happens, uh, the people that that were were speaking out, um, we have to be we have to be accepting. Uh, a lot of the there's a lot of anger by on, among the people that were harmed by the lockdowns, that were harmed by the policies that that we followed the last two years. And there's uh, and I've seen some desire to say, well, if you if you were in favor of them, uh, there must be a but you, you you were bad or evil or wrong. I mean, a lot of people were just scared. They just didn't know the facts. Um, and I think we have yeah. to be. Uh, on this that side, we have to build a broad coalition, an accepting coalition, because uh, to me, the most important thing that can come out of this, or one of the important things that can come out of this, is a broad consensus against lockdown. Because as you said, John, this will happen again. Uh, pandemics will happen again. We should never resort to these kinds of measures again. And we have to create a broad political coalition that then uh, establishes lockdown as a dirty word. As, as something to shudder and fear over rather than something to, to think about as, as a savior from an infectious disease. 
So I worry a bit about the memory holding that we're being pushed to do in relation to what's happened over the last couple of years. I mean, there's been a lot of scrubbing of tweets and Facebook posts and a lot of, as you say, realignment. Oh, yeah, I always was against lockdown, right? And you actually look back and no, you weren't. You were one of the advocates, right? So some basically looking for chairs in the musical chairs game um, that we are getting to here at the end of, you know, finally people are starting to see uh, that, that this was a, a horrific mistake. But I worry about the memory holding and the amnesia um, that people will have a very strong psychological incentive to undertake um, because they don't want to think of themselves as complicit in, a, in an evil. Right? Because why am I worried about it? Because if we don't have a recognition of what happened, if we don't have a table on which we can all lay our pain from this period and acknowledge it and have some apologies, then I fear we, we won't be able to move forward as effectively, right? And, and so that's my, I, I agree that we need a broad coalition, but I think there is so much anger because of the, just the scale of the destruction that, that we need to have a process of reconciliation, some, somehow structured. I mean, in Australia, you'd expect a royal commission. Not that I think that will actually achieve that much, but maybe the, the third round review eventually, when we get there, will achieve something. And I think the reconciliation process that South Africans followed after apartheid, something like that, but you know, for the whole of the population and with real pain recognized, that's the only way that some people are going to be able to get over what happened to them during this period. I mean, there's an analogy I, I make with, uh, there's a, in, when a patient dies, in, in medicine, you have a conference. It's called a morbidity and mortality conference. And the doctors and caregivers that are involved will get together. The, the, the spirit isn't of pointing fingers. The spirit of, is, is an honest assessment of what went wrong, what led to the patient's death, with, a, with the idea that, that, that uh, from that process of talking about it honestly with one another, we will, we will never do this again. We won't make those same mistakes again. That is the spirit I think we need to start talking about this. There's another sense in which I think the spirit in which we talk about it's important, if I can put it this way. We've just seen the extraordinary emotion right around the world at the loss of a servant leader, if you can put it that way, Queen Elizabeth, uh, who, who used her power for the betterment of others, if I can put it that way. Inherent in some of your remarks is, is something that really worries me. It's a modern tendency to score through the history books, to look for every grievance, for every excuse, real or imagined, to grasp power. And that's the opposite of servant leadership. We loathe it when we see it in our politicians and we think it's they're lining their own nest. We quickly say, actually, they're there to serve us. But you've now got a situation where we've touched on this, is almost a sort of conspiracy. I hate that word. But to grab power wherever you possibly can and to hang on to it. So it's important that we not allow people to get away with distorting the position that they took. We need to make them own it. I think that's part of what I hear you saying, Gigi. Yes, no, I do think that that's best for uh, healing, both from um, the, the damage at this time and also for the perpetrators of some of the, uh, the, the mistakes during this period. Um, I, I suppose that there's also a sense in which, I wouldn't use the word conspiracy, but in the modern age, it has become more profitable to make alliances uh, between, say, government and industry. If you're in government, it's, it's yeah. good if you know some people in industry. Uh, if you're in industry, it's good to know people in government, particularly in Australia, where we have so many regulated industries. Um, the kind of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder rubbing of government and, and bureaucracies in the government and industrial leadership is such that it's a very, very lucrative, um, appealing, very seductive path to go down to say, well, I'm going to make some deals here. I'm going to 
you know, make some profit and I'll just wrap it in the flag of whatever the flavor of the month is. And that could be COVID and public health, climate change, you know, whatever, trigger happy cancel culture, you know, prevention, whatever it is that is popular, right? And, and that is dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why in our book, The Great COVID Panic, my co-authors and I suggest a kind of enhanced role for direct democracy in the appointment of the people in these bureaucracies, in Western supposed democracies around the world, who are actually in charge of resource allocation on behalf of the people. Because as you know, the leadership of ministries, for example, in Australia or, or in the United States and Europe, many places, is actually appointed by politicians rather than directly by the people. And this is one of the reasons why we can you know, come up with the word conspiracy and it doesn't feel like it's a completely unfitting term, right? You, you have politicians who appoint their buddies, their cronies, to positions of real resource allocative power. So if you instead had juries of citizens, just regular citizens, appointing the leadership, the top layer of the bureaucracy, then you are breaking the link somewhat between politics and money, on the one hand, the elite's interest, and the interests of the people on the street. And so that's, for us, that's a, a positive way to, to think forward, is, is how can we reorganize a little bit in the institutional structures so that we can be more immune against this kind of misuse of power going forward. I mean, some, some, one of the, a couple of the ideas I've had along those lines, because um, to me it's, the, it's scientific bureaucracies that took over. Um, well, how do you rein in power of scientific bureaucracies while still allowing them to, to perform their vital functions? Um, so one is, you have, you have people that have very long tenure that build power bases that are almost impossible to, 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 to uh, you know, control. So, you know, someone like Tony Fauci, he's been in his job for 38 years. He's advised seven presidents. Um, he has tremendous power over the narrative that, uh, that, that, that uh, journalists talk about other scientists and, and the careers of other scientists. Well, you can have term limits. Uh, you can have, uh, uh, you can have uh, uh, bright ethical lines where someone in charge of scientific funding has absolutely no role in policymaking, only over deciding, deciding you know, what, what, who, what's a high quality grant or, or whatever. Um, I think that, that, that uh, 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 there are reforms that are possible. You, you have to have a scientific bureaucracy. It's not possible not to have one. But you have to decentralize it. You have to limit the power of, indi of, of, sim of, of individuals within it. And you have to uh, create a, 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 a kind of ethic where the, the kinds of non-obvious conflict of interest that have come up during the pandemic, scientific funder in charge of science policy, uh, become as unethical as having a pharmaceutical company in charge of regulating and approving drugs. JJ, central to your uh, position that the pandemic response was actually more harmful than beneficial is the concept of a quali measure. Quali standing for quality adjusted life year. This sounds interesting. Can you explain uh, what it is uh, and how it influenced your thinking uh, and where listeners might be keen to get hold of this and have a look at it, just as they would be with your new book. So please put in a plug for both. Sure. Uh, so in uh, the latest book, the, the Lockdown CBA, Cost-Benefit Analysis with Sanjeev Sablok, um, we do use qualies. We also use a couple of other currencies. The quali is a currency that's been around for quite a long time in health economics. It's a quality-adjusted life year. Quali is uh, equal to one uh, when one person lives for one year at good, excellent health. Okay, so if you've lived for one year and you have very good health, uh, you have a quality value of one. As your quality of health is lower during that year, you have a quality of slightly less than one. 
um, maybe 0.8, for example, if you you know you have a, a major uh, problem somehow mobility or or functionality of a, of an organ or something, um, and it goes down from there. Now, this is a, a currency that's so useful because within governments all over the world, we need to decide how to allocate our scarce resources to health protection and promotion through expenditures on things like drugs and interventions, uh, you know, mechanical arms and, and whatnot. And so we have negotiations, we being the people represented by government bureaucracies, to the extent that we are represented by them, with drug companies and, and purveyors of uh, medical equipment, where we say, okay, well, what can you give us? And that thing you're going to give us, how many qualities will it give us? Right? If I buy that drug, if I put that on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, how many qualities am I getting for Australians? And then how many dollars does it cost per quality you're giving me? Now, if that cost is above about $100,000 Australian, we are not interested, generally speaking. So there's a threshold value that in pre-COVID times, was simply evidence in the in the decisions made by the pharmaceutical benefit scheme here in Australia and other analogous organizations overseas. So if I can jump in, Gigi, about the about the qualities, the, the I think there's a, it's really important to understand the ethical basis for using qualities. The idea is that if I spend something uh, a, a, that's very very expensive, so if I uh, you know spend money on an intervention that costs a million dollars per quality, well I could I could have taken that money and distribute it to many other people on higher, uh, sort of higher yield interventions. I could have improved the lives of 10, 20 other people for the same amount of money that I spent on, on improving the life of one, one, uh, one intervention. I could have improved on net the lives of, 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 of a huge number of people instead of, instead of using it on something that, that actually ended up, uh, as far as opportunity costs are concerned, harming people. So the tragedy is that we, we do have scarce resources. I mean, hopefully as we get richer and richer and richer, maybe in another 500 years, we won't have to only spend $100,000 per quality in developed countries. We'll be spending a million dollars per quality, right? That's a mark of how well off we are because of course, lesser developed countries have a lower threshold uh, price for which they will be willing to, to you know, buy a medical intervention or a pill or something. So, the, so that is a useful, currency because it can capture things like the health costs of delaying your cancer visit, your cancer screening, or your regular PCP visit or whatever uh, because you suffer more and you have a lower quality of life in that period you're suffering. Possibly you might die because you don't get the right kind of treatment in time. And we have seen, for example, dementia deaths and, and cancer deaths raising, you know, going above normal levels in Australia. Uh, but there is also another currency that we use which is translatable to the quality and that's one of the reasons we use it which is just serendipitously very well suited to capturing the kinds of costs that were caused by lockdown policies and also quite serendipitously recently invented by my co-author Paul Friders and his team at the London School of Economics back in I think 2018, 2019 and it's the well-being year. The well-being year is essentially a measure built from a question that's standard in many social scientific surveys around the world which is overall how satisfied are you with your life nowadays. It's intended to capture not just your physical health, which is really what the quality focuses on, but also your level of satisfaction with your life, your sense of you know whether you have purpose and meaning, whether you're surrounded by love, whether you're happy, whether you're doing things you enjoy, all these things that we generally think of when we evaluate our life as a whole. So if you want to really you know, maximize people's thriving, you care about that kind of measure. And in economics, we're supposed to care about maximizing people's thriving, right? We're supposed to care about maximizing aggregate wealth 
welfare, the total welfare of a population. So we use the WellBe in our lockdowns uh, cost-benefit analysis to measure and, and get, a, get a gauge of how much damage was done to people on this kind of level, on this kind of dimension of their satisfaction with life. That captures mental health damage. That captures people's additional stress. It captures people's you know, sense of being disconnected from their work, from their uh, per personal lives, from their families, you know, being unable to see their, their mother in the aged care home, whatever it was. And so all of that gets sort of together measured in people's subjective reports of their satisfaction with life. And we do see in countries that were locked down, at the times in the months of the lockdown, that measure goes down a lot. In a normal year in a country like Australia, we're pretty happy. Um, we, we generally you know, will report that we are about 8 out of 10 satisfied. So you know, if that measure is, goes from a 0 to 10, where 0 is I'm not satisfied with my life as a whole at all, and 10 is extremely, we answer about an 8. That's true of most developed Western countries, somewhere between a 6 and an 8. But um, that slipped by a point or two in locked down countries and, and locked down regions of countries. And so we use that here in, in, our, in our Australian cost-benefit analysis of lockdowns to gauge the extent to which we damage that portion of or that, that way of measuring human welfare. That can be translated to qualities because of the fact that satisfaction with life on that 0 to 10 scale can actually be translated to a quality. So if we normally answer an 8 if we're feeling healthy and well, and we answer, as it turns out, about a 2 when we're just about indifferent between living and dying, then that means that 8 minus 2, which is 6, is roughly equivalent to a full year lived by one person, that is the respondent, uh, in a state of good health. And so once you have that translation of six well-bees to one quality, then as we say in Australia, you're cooking with gas, you can then measure up the costs of our lockdown policies in various realms using whichever uh, quantity is most convenient. And of course, in another, another currency we use, and the final one is dollars, that's very useful for things like debt, right? So when you accumulate hundreds of billions of dollars of debt that you're going to have to repay, and therefore, because of scarcity, is going to crowd out expenditure on everything in the future, from children's daycares to roads to hospitals, then you, know, you, you need to capture that somehow in a currency that it comes in. That's dollars. Dollars can be translated to qualities using that translation we talked about earlier where societies pay a certain amount per quality. So you can say, how much could we have gotten? How much human welfare could we have gotten with that money? Instead of just spending it to tread water during COVID, my goodness, if we had invested that someplace else, right? If, if we'd invested that in, in, in indigenous healthcare, in um, you know, environmental stewardship, in you, you name it, you know, there's plenty of places. Oh, so, I mean, so many other you know, needy areas uh, where, you know, age people, age, age care homes, right, where we could have really had a huge bang for the buck. What about early childhood education? It's like one of my favorite ones, right? We just, we, we could have done so much with that money. Instead, all we did was tread water, accumulate debt, and, and imperil the futures of our kids. Well, that sounds like an incredibly valuable tool and the very sort of thing that the Australian people should have access to if they're confronted by people who are going to club together and do what we saw at the beginning that we were talking about earlier. So there you go. Well done. Um, can we come to uh, Jay perhaps uh, first? Uh, to the vaccines themselves, uh, on their release, they were declared to be safe and effective by the FDA in America, and by the TGA in Australia. Uh, there are now those starting to say we're not quite so sure about the long-term impacts. Um, do you have a view uh, on uh, how, how, how good the vaccines are and whether they were carefully evaluated? 
Sure. So uh, the, the, the evaluation of the vaccines relied on a gold standard kind of, kind of approach, which is uh, a randomized controlled trial. In a randomized trial, uh, there are uh, you know, tens of thousands of people were assigned either randomly to the vaccine arm or to a control, control group. Uh, these trials occurred in 2020, uh, run by companies like Pfizer and Moderna uh, and, and, and AstraZeneca. Uh, now, these, these trials uh, lasted about three months and you had tens of thousands of patients. The vaccines then are rolled out essentially to billions. You know, a, a billion or more people have taken, you know, actually it's like something like two billion people have taken the vaccines. Um, when you have a trial that run, um, in tens of thousands and then you roll it out to, to billions, you're going to have unexpected things happen. Things you didn't see or ha in the trial uh, will happen in the real world. So let's talk about, you asked safe and effective. Let's, let's talk first about effectiveness. In the trials, the trials showed that that the, the, the vaccines prevented symptomatic infection. That is, you, you had COVID and you had symptoms from COVID, and it prevented them at 95% efficacy for three months. The trials didn't ask and didn't check whether it stopped you from getting infected with COVID at all. Maybe you had very mild infection. Um, you didn't check for that. Uh, it also didn't check to see if you died from COVID or other, other, other things. It didn't have enough people in the trials. Tens of thousands turns out to be not enough to check to see if there's an effect on severe disease and death in the trials. But the, the trial results were effective enough to say, yes, we should use it in the population. I think that was absolutely the right decision. Um, but what we learned in the, inter, uh, in the process after the, trial, the, the vaccines were released is that in fact, the vaccines are not very effective at stopping you from getting COVID. It's not very effective at stopping the transmission of COVID. So I was vaccinated in April of 2021, and three months later, I had COVID. August of 2021, I guess four months later. Um, uh, that's actually a very typical pattern. Many, many people, I, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, a very large fraction of people who've been vaccinated have had COVID in, in, you know, subsequent to the vaccination because the vaccine does not stop you from getting or COVID or transmitting COVID. On the other hand, uh, experience with the vaccine afterwards suggests that for older people especially, you ha it actually does protect against getting severe disease if you get COVID, right? So it reduces the risk of hospitalizations, reduces the risk of death if you get COVID. So it might take somebody who's 80 years old for whom the infection fatality rate of COVID was 6% and might reduce that to 0.5%. It's a pretty substantial improvement in the likelihood of surviving if you get COVID. Um, and so the vaccine then uh, should be used, I believe, for focused protection of vulnerable people, people for whom the, 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 the getting the vaccine reduces the harm from COVID by quite a bit. Um, it can't be used to stop disease spread. It, 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 in other words, it has a private benefit. It protects me if I get COVID, if I get COVID I'll be less likely to die from getting it. Uh, but it doesn't have a very large public benefit. Uh, if, if, I, if I'm vaccinated, I don't protect you very much, John, uh, because I can still get COVID, I can still pass it to you. It's very different than many other vaccines. Uh, on the question of safe, uh, we've learned that it's, it's uh, that, that roughly speaking, uh, there are populations of people for whom the vaccine produces some side effects that we didn't expect. So for instance, young men have va vaccine-induced myocarditis, that is inflammation of the heart, 
at, at high rates, actually. One, thousand, one, in, one in a thousand, one in 2,000, one in 3,000, uh, estimates vary, uh, after the vaccine. These are young men for whom the vaccine doesn't really reduce the risk of dying from COVID very much because they didn't have a very large risk of dying in the first place from COVID. And so the way I look at it, um, you, you make the vaccine available to everyone you can. Prioritize older people from getting it because those are the people who are at highest risk of dying from COVID. Uh, recommend strongly that they take it because even though there are some uncertainty about uh, what might happen after you take the vaccine, there may be side effects we don't know about, for instance, um, the benefit is very, very high. Uh, for populations for whom the benefit is low, it doesn't, doesn't make, it, I would say, be much more careful about it. You can go talk to your doctor and see if based on your uh, particular clinical circumstances whether it makes sense for you. It's a private medical decision that should be made by people on the basis of good medical advice. It shouldn't be something that is induced and coerced where the population at large is forced to take it. Because it doesn't really matter if 95% or 20% of the population is vaccinated as far as the risk to me. All that matters to me is if I'm vaccinated, I can, I can, I, and based on my age, I'll have my own risk factor. It doesn't matter if, if I'm in a room full of unvaccinated people, they don't pose any additional risk to me than being in a room full of vaccinated people. Um, and so uh, I, I think that's the, that's the key thing, the two key takeaways. One is use the vaccine to protect older people particularly, but allow people uh, to, to go treat the vaccine like, like a, 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 a private medical decision where they get good medical advice, and then don't use the vaccine, don't coerce people to take the vaccine in the foolish bid to try to make the, vac the, the disease go away. The vaccine just isn't fit for that. So I would agree with much of that. Um, I have a father who's 91 years old and he's quadruple jabbed and he's in New York State. And as I've said from the beginning, I think that's probably a good idea. Um, male and over 90, you know, that's that's pretty much the, you know, the worst group, although he doesn't have too many comorbidities, thank goodness. Um, but uh, but I do think that the, the, the excessive focus on should we or should we not do the vaccine and for whom is it good and everything, again, sweeps under the carpet the fact that there are many other things one can do to reduce the severity of COVID. <laughs> Keeping yourself healthy, generally, uh, eating well, sleeping well, you know, making sure you're not deficient in vitamins and, you know, generally doing everything we do to improve our immunity um, against any kind of bug, which, by the way, we were pressing against with lockdowns, um, is, is actually the first thing you should be doing, right? That's the first thing you should think about. And, and then, of course, the second thing is anybody should be making a decision about whether to get the vaccine or whether to take, you know, a vitamin C tablets or any other decision about his or her health on the basis of what's good for him or her, not on the basis of the social good. Because once we start going down that, that very dangerous slippery slope of saying, here is a medical intervention that I'm going to give to you because it is good for everybody else. I don't really know whether it's good for you and, and maybe it's not good for you, but you know what? It's good for everybody else, so here you go. Right? That is very dangerous. We know what that looks like. And I, I, do, I won't mention the historical analog because everybody will be thinking about it, but that, that is very dangerous. And so in the situations that, that Jay was describing, the young men, certainly also the pregnant women, the lactating women, we don't have data on such people and, and in terms of their reaction to the vaccine because they weren't included in, in most of the initial trials. And, and so we really don't know whether the vaccine is safe. And usually for most kinds of new medicines, pregnant women are considered kind of the most vulnerable group in society. They carry the next generation and, and they're very vulnerable in that sense. And so yes, we want to protect them, but not through putting things into their arms that are, that are unproven in the long term because they hold someone in them who is going to be 
with us for the long term, right? They're the youngest uh, of, of you know, the species. And so same thing with children and toddlers. So I've been particularly distressed at the, the ferocity with which these vaccines have been marketed to people who didn't have much of a risk from, from COVID to begin with, and all with this overlay of, well, it's good for society, right? That to me is very dangerous, and it goes to this point of coercion. If you use social structures to coerce people into taking medical decisions, that is a violation of fundamental human medical autonomy. It is a violation, I believe, of the Nuremberg Code because of the fact that these vaccines are still only provisionally approved. Uh, it's an experimental drug. It's an experiment. It's a medical experiment. Uh, so that's, I think, another thing that's going to come out in the wash after another two or three or four years. I do expect to, despite the fact that I agree that the vaccines can be useful for some people in the population in consultation with their doctors, I still expect that Pfizer leadership will probably end up in jail. I think there will probably be some jail time. Certainly some very, very, very steep fines, as they have paid in the past. Um, and as big companies, pharmaceutical companies uh, of other uh, brands have paid in the, in the past after having made big mistakes. And we know that it takes a couple years for this to happen. I recall to you the, the thalidomide disaster right back in the 1950s. And that took a few years until it became clear, based on individual reports from gynecologists and obstetricians who were finding, oh my goodness, why are we getting so many deformities? Oh gosh, I think it could be that I've assigned, I've prescribed this pregnant woman thalidomide for her anxiety. And in fact, it was causing uh, you know, problems. And of course, we know now, even more so than at that period, there are many disincentives to reporting side effects with these vaccines. It's very uncool to do that because it's very much not aligned with the interests of big money and, and big power. And so and I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, but just as a scientist, I look at that as somebody who studied power for you know 10 or 15 years and, and the impact of networks and social influence. Uh, it, is, it is not an environment right now in which people can feel free to say, oh, I'm, I'm worried about the side effects or I had a side effect or please report my side effect. It, it's just not very easy to do that. It's like being in science and trying to you know, state an, a counter opinion to, to the standard narrative. Well, I think that just to, just to amend that a little bit, I mean, I think uh, there are systems to track vaccine safety that don't require people to voluntarily report. Uh, so I've worked with the FDA, the US FDA, for, for uh, 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 many years now, uh, where uh, there are syst passive systems that pick up basically uh, you know, every single medical interaction, right? So for instance, in the United States, um, there are, uh, if you are 65 or above, you're in a, in a, system, a healthcare system called the Medicare system. Um, and every time there's a medical claim, a doctor, you see a patient, a patient sees a doctor, the doctor then files the claim with the, with the, uh, with, with the government because then the government has to then pays the doctor. So the, the, the doctor has every incentive to, to, to file that claim. You can, you can track patients over time and compare vaccinated and unvaccinated patients, see how they did in comparison. And from that, you can pick up side effects, you can pick up, uh, you can do efficacy studies. Now, the US FDA hasn't done a lot of that work, much less than I expected. But there are other entities, other governments that have, other places that have. So for instance, in Qatar, of all places, they have a fantastic universal electronic health record system. And they've done fantastic studies tracking uh, uh, the, the efficacy of the vaccine over time. Um, there have been studies out of places like, uh, like Denmark looking at the all-cause uh, mortality effects of the vaccines, um, reanalyzing the randomized studies. Uh, there's been people uh, like the, there's, a, there's a study recently done by, the, by a BMJ, uh, British Medical Journal editor, 
reassessing the randomized studies, trying to measure the adverse event rates from the vaccines. It turns out to be about one in 800 serious adverse event rates, which is, which is kind of high for a vaccine, but still not high enough that you would say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. You know, certainly people with high benefit, I'd recommend it to. Um, so I think, uh, I think it's not th that these things are gonna be hidden forever, that they're coming out. Science sometimes does take a while. And it's true that there's been some, you know, like people, this, the vaccines have, have this like very strange aura around them where if you say there's a, an adverse event, you get called an anti-vaxxer even though that's what's showing in the data. Uh, but you know, despite that, we know uh, that, uh, for instance, there's high rates of myocarditis for young men taking the vaccine. That's come out and it's accepted and you can say that without being called an anti-vaxxer. I do think that the conversation of the vaccine is poisoned by this sort of strange uh, strange idea that everyone must take the vaccine or else you're socially irresponsible. Um, and it's, it's because of that that it's been so difficult to talk about adverse events for the vaccine, um, the proper use of the vaccine when it's, when it's appropriate. We should talk about it the same way we talk about other medical services, other drugs. It's not some magical thing. It's just, it's a medical intervention that helps, someti helps sometimes, and sometimes it's not necessary. And we have to talk about when that is, what, what, uh, in, in the same kind of way that we talk about any other drug. We, we don't go around saying, uh, if, you, if you're opposed to taking some drug, that you're, you're an anti-drugger. <laughs> you're, you're not, or you're, you're, just, you're just, so this idea of like anti-vaxxer, if you're just assessing the, uh, uh, the effects of the vaccine, it's just, it's, I think it's been really counterproductive. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Any final thoughts on whether we can avoid making a similar blunder? I think you both described this as the greatest policy blunder in living memory. How confident are you that we can avoid it next time? We've talked about this, but just to wrap up, uh, Gigi, we might start with you first. Do you think we can avoid this sort of extraordinary overreaction? Well, Again. I think if we stay with the institutional structures and the systems that we had during this period, we're quite likely to have a repeat. And, and you already see the COVID crowds morphing into crowds for other things now. So whether it's climate change or, um, you know, some other kind of kind of almost cultish ideology, we are simply a species that tends to fall for that stuff. <laughs> we, we have a very religious uh, nature. And it's not bad that that religiosity is not, I mean, I'm not judging it. I'm an economist. I don't judge human nature, but it is, it is just a fact. And so we have to construct institutions that recognize that fact and that also recognize the corrosiveness of power, of the concentration of power, the danger of the concentration of power. And so that's why, as I, as I said before, what my co-authors and I have been proposing kind of moves in the direction of decentralizing power, um, taking it out of the hands of a smaller number of people and trying to break the link between the people who are resource allocating on behalf of a whole country and the politicians who have all sorts of moneyed and, and you know, uh, very powerful networks in the private sector as well, because that link is what then corrupts the purpose of the state away from what is actually good for its people. So I think we do have a lot of work to do in, in rebuilding our institutions, obviously also in reconciling across the aisle during this period, and I think increasing our uh, level of literacy in relation to uh, economics and science. I mean, I, I work for that as well. I'm, I'm in another hat that I wear. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done, but I am very confident at the end of the day because I, I am an optimist and a, a great lover of humanity. I believe that we can achieve incredible things 
when we work together, when we are honest with each other, when we allow our creativity to bloom, and when we allow diverse perspectives to be discussed about, uh, about any given issue. And that's, that's probably, if I would say there's one thing we need to learn, it is how to let bloom multiple perspectives and ideas in relation to any given threat so that we don't just get captured by one monocultural version of the truth because that's how you get very stupid and that's how you stop growth. All growth is ultimately a function of innovation and every innovation was at one point a minority opinion. So if you crush the minority, you're crushing the societal progress you'd like to have for your, for your children. Jay, as an American, you'd be aware that the founders were very wary of power being misused. They wanted it spread thinly over uh, society. They wanted no one to have too much power or to be able to hang on for it uh, too long. There is a sense in which the whole COVID mess, I think, reflects the loss of mooring in Western society. And we've seen this citizenry too easily panicked, I have to say that, too easily persuaded to surrender freedom, to demand that experts look after them, to look for security rather than self-reliance and the ability to show initiative and drive. That's a very broad philosophical position, but I thought you might like to take it home with some thoughts. I mean, I think the key part of the American system that, that really makes has made it work for, for centuries is this idea of checks and balances on power. Power has to exist. It's not like it's, it's optional. You, you need scientific expertise to be advising, uh, advising policymakers. Uh, what's happened during the pandemic is that the, the normal checks and balances within, uh, within a system like the American system, but actually around the world, have, have been subverted. There have been almost no check or balance to the power of scientific bureaucrats to mold the agenda of the entire world. And what we've learned is that scientists, uh, especially these sci a narrow group of scientific experts, do not have the wisdom to, uh, to, 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 to rule the world, do not have the wisdom to, uh, to structure society for the benefit of all. Uh, and so I, I, I do think, uh, in response to your earlier question, John, I think we will have an evaluation. We must have an evaluation. The harm has been too great to the poor, the vulnerable, the working class. They're, they're, uh, experience during the, the pandemic cries the out. Yeah, it cries out for it for a, 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 an honest evaluation, and it will come, John. And what I want to do is I want to work toward making that evaluation as constructive as possible, and then building systems where those checks and balances uh, will be in place, so that when there's another pandemic, this kind of panic, this kind of reliance on a small group of, of scientific clarity does not happen again, and that we can have. Uh, a, a renewed enlightenment um, that will benefit uh, benefit all from for for a long time to come. You've both been very generous with your time, and I salute both your extraordinary intellectual grasp of so many issues and your ability to convey it in language that we can understand. So thank you very much indeed, uh, and uh, very best wishes to you both. Thank you, John. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For more information, visit johnanderson.net.au.